So hi, everybody, and welcome to the Business Disability Forum podcast. This is Brendan from BDF. I lead on our international projects, the work that we do with our member organizations that are global. And I'm here with my colleague, Lucy, as well, who leads on our tech work. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Bren. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good, good, good. I shall keep it brief because I'm sure you'll hear plenty from me later on. We sure will. And look, we're speaking to somebody today who we've both known in slightly different capacities for a few years now. So we're actually both really excited to, to be speaking to our guest today, who is Deborah Rue. Deborah is the CEO and founder of Rue Global Impact. She is a global disability inclusion strategist, a market influencer, internationally recognized keynote speaker, published author, branding expert, successful entrepreneur, and according to her official bio, exceptional mother as well, which I expect we'll hear a little bit more about as our conversation unfolds. Deborah is also the host of a popular podcast, Human Potential at Work, co-founder of the award-winning Access Chat, which she co-hosts with a couple of friends of, of BDF as well, Neil Milliken and Antonio Santos as well. Deborah's written three books. She regularly consults with multinational and national corporations and the United Nations as well, which is actually, I think, where we first met. Look, there's tons more, but actually, I think I'll, I'll bring I'll bring Deborah in and let her do some of the talking and explain a little bit about her background. So, Deborah, hi, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be on the show today. So, I know you've been on my show, and so has Diane Lightfoot talking mm-hmm. about BDF, and I'm a big fan of BDF. I love what y'all do there. Thank you. And look, it's been it's been a, a little while, but we're glad to get you uh, finally onto our show as well. So you've done a lot, you do a lot. Is, is there anything I, I'd missed or how do you typically introduce yourself? Well, I, I would say one, that one thing that I have started talking more about is that I come from, I'm obviously from the United States, and I come from what we call corporate America. So I was in the banking industry for many years. And then when my daughter was born with Down syndrome, I started thinking, oh, I should contribute to this community. I am part of this community now. And so I did it right away. But when she reached middle school and I started hearing again what she was not capable of doing and how she would not add any value to the workforce, which I didn't understand because I had met her, I decided that I would step in and create a technology company that hired people with disabilities. How hard would it be? Okay, it's hard, but <laughs> it was worth it. How long have you been working in the disability space for, for now then? Give us a, an idea of the, of the timescales. I started my business in 2001. And when I first started my business, I knew, I know technology. I love technology. My father was a technologist before people knew what that was. And so I knew I wanted to be, continue to do technology. I knew I wanted to employ people with disabilities, but I didn't necessarily know what we were going to do. So I thought, well, we'll build websites because 2001, that was, you know, still new. But it, to be honest, I realized very quickly, there was a lot of people that were building websites, even more now. But so around that time, we had updated one of our laws in the United States. It was our Rehabilitation Act of 1973, amended multiple times. And there is a little section in there called Section 508. And Section 508 insisted that all of our government uh, websites, at the time we were calling it E and IT, Electronic and Information Technology. We now call it ICT, Internet Communications Technology. I started thinking, well, you know, we want to make sure websites are accessible to people with disabilities. We should use people with disabilities to do that. 
that's when my company Tech Access was born. I'd actually called it something else, which made so much sense to me as somebody that had never been an entrepreneur. Strategic Performance Solutions. I sat in my room thinking, oh, we can be strategic. Yeah, okay. I created a made-up name, Tech Access, and over 80% of my team were technologists with disabilities, many of them self-taught and self-educated because at the time, nothing was accessible pretty much to people with disabilities. In terms of Rue Global Impact now, so can you talk to us a little bit about the, the journey from TechX to, to your current company? Yes, I had Tech Access from 2001 until 2011. And unfortunately, my company, it did well. It, I always was having cash flow problems, all the fun things you deal with as an entrepreneur. And I deliberately made my company for profit. I didn't want to be a nonprofit at the time, and I still feel the same way because I knew we were going to be successful. Nothing like having courage there. I figured we would be successful because I was going to work hard to make sure we were successful and I was hiring such talented people, but I didn't want people to say we were successful because we were a nonprofit in a charity. And I just really felt that we should mainstream technology and including people with disabilities and technology. And it seems ridiculous to say that, but even as early as 2001, people were not being employed. We still have a lot of employment opportunities, uh, including people with disabilities, but I won all these awards. It was ridiculous, all the awards I won, because it was so novice that I'd have a technology company that hired people with disabilities. And I thought, something is wrong with that. I mean, yay for me for all these lovely awards I'm getting, but this should not be considered you know, out of the normal. But unfortunately, when the financial crisis happened, pretty much because of the United States banks being forgetting to behave properly, the small business bank that I was with in Virginia was the first line of small banks to fail. And they actually called a $200,000 note on me. And two weeks later, they sent me a $20,000 penalty and interest payment. And I was like, oh, no, you're going to drive me out of business. And also, unfortunately, at the time in the United States, 7 million Americans, 5 million men, 2 million women were laid off. And so I did not want to take this amazing team, many of them with people with very severe disabilities, because I had employees that were blind. I had blind and deaf, autism that my daughter was supporting us with Down syndrome, MS, MD, quadriplegic, paraplegic. We were just a very diverse team. It was about 40 of us. And many of my employees worked right from their nursing homes or right from their apartments with supported staff or supported team members. And I just knew if, if I laid them off, they didn't have a chance in that marketplace. And so I merged with another company. The company's name was SSB, and they're now called Level Access. And I just had to protect my employees. A lot of people, including me, lost a lot of money, but whatever, money, blah, you know. People are, to, are more important to me than money. But one thing that I did realize, I went and worked with SSB as their chief marketing officer, and I went with my employees. All my employees got hired. And I stayed there for 18 months. But something that I'd started noticing happening to my clients at Tech Access were that they, they would often say to me, we feel like we're a nonprofit ourselves inside these gigantic corporations. And every year our budget gets tightened a little bit more, a little bit more. And I thought, gosh, somebody needs to start telling the stories of what these corporations are doing so our community 
knows that corporations are really, really trying to make a difference. And in the States at that time, we didn't have BDF. And so we were sort of all on our own figuring it out. And we, I remember looking across the pond and being so envious of what BDF was doing and actually contributing some to BDF early on with Susan Scott Parker, because I just thought your model was so smart. But we didn't have anything like that in the United States. We really still don't have anything like BDF in the United States, and we still need it. <laughs> That's a whole other topic. But about 18 months in, I, I really did not want to work for a small business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur and make a difference. So I created Rue Global Impact, continuing to focus on disability inclusion and accessibility, but to tell the stories, tell the stories on social media, do it on air like we're doing now and really give the community members a chance to talk about what they're doing, which is why, once again, I featured BDF twice on my show. You've talked a little bit about your, your daughter. I know it's obviously, I mean, kids, let's face it, are a pretty big part of our lives anyway, aren't they? But yes. <laughs> I, th I think your daughter is kind of a bit, a bit extra special as well, isn't she? And um, adds a lot of quality to your life and takes you down unexpected journeys. And, and Well um, said, well yeah. said. And obviously that, that's been a huge impact in driving um, your interest in disability. But I think that in terms of your sort of personal story of your wider family and yourself, that's, that's not the only um, contact or the only areas of interest of disability to you. Can you talk, share a little bit more about that as well? Yes, thank you, Lucy. That's a great question. I, and I actually am the mother of two children. I've, neither one of them are children anymore. They're both in their early 30s. And actually, Sarah's brother, Kevin, who was born 15 months after she was born, works with me in the company. He's my chief marketing officer and my son, but he's, he does a really good job. And Sarah's now 32. And also, as life proceeds, my wonderful, amazing husband of almost 39 years, who's just been a, such a gift in my life, he had a traumatic brain injury when he was a child, and he was hit by a car and unfortunately landed on his eye. So it was a really, really bad accident, but he survived it, went on, he lived a great life, got married, two children, uh, but he now has early onset dementia because of the traumatic brain injury. Um, when you have that sphere of a traumatic brain injury, your brain ages differently. So we are living disabilities. We are disabilities. And something, my daughter, we, we have been so blessed because my daughter, born with Down syndrome, she had very few health issues in her life. She, um, she, like her mother, always struggled with her weight, very common with Down syndrome, but otherwise very healthy. But last year, a few years ago, uh, she started getting sick. We didn't know why. And actually, we are celebrating as we're doing this episode. We um, in the United States are about to celebrate Thanksgiving, very mm. important holiday for the United States. And last year, we actually went to the hospital and my daughter had part of her small bowel and intestines removed because she had a blood clot. She has a blood clot disorder. Who knew? And <laughs> hundreds of blood clots formed in the vein going into her liver and it just wrecked havoc on her body. And the great news is she's well, and she's actually, this is so hard on my heart. She's actually moved out on her own. She's in a supported apartment. So she has her own apartment with a roommate who also has disabilities. And she has staff that comes in and just supports her with cooking and taking her meds and things like that. But I'm an empty nester, Lucy, and I'm telling you, it's only been about six weeks, and I'm, it's messing with my head. <laughs> <laughs> Even in their 30s, they're still your babies, aren't they, Deborah? You know, yes. just, 
interestingly, I know that um, I've heard you talk a little bit more about your own personal. You, I know you talked about your family and shared, uh, you know, your story with that. But you've talked a little bit about your your own personal experience of disability. And, and is that deliberate? Is there a, was there a conscious decision behind deciding to share that info with, with your followers? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, it was very deliberate because um, when I started doing access chat with Neil Milliken and Antonio Santos, everybody was talking about who they were. After a couple of years, I thought, because what I didn't want to do, it felt like to me sometimes people were talking about this in a way that didn't always feel genuine to me in the States. And that really was unfair of me to say, to even think that. But I started thinking, but you do have, I've struggled with depression my whole life. My mom, my mom had a borderline personality disorder, which is tough growing up, but I loved my mom to death and she's passed away now, but I wound up getting diagnosed a few years ago in my, in the tender age of 54 with ADHD. And I had a lot of my friends say, how did you not know? Cause we've definitely known for years, Deborah, but I am 60 now and girls typically are underdiagnosed. And certainly people my age, women, girls were never diagnosed with ADHD. It was just something that boys couldn't sit still. And a lot of things make sense to me now about my life. I was always in trouble chatting and talking in school, laughing, uh, you know, you're too curious. Uh, all the things that are actually, I think, strengths, but also sometimes the ADHD can, it, you know, can cause me to get anxiety and depression. It's something I um, struggle with. But at the same time, Lucy, I thought we all are unique. And so, yes, I have ADHD and I struggle with depression, but I also have a really cool brain. And I think it is important now more than ever before talking about neurodiversity for us to all disclose who we are and feel comfortable with who we are, hopefully at the same time. It's also, I think, a really important part of who we are, isn't it? And it's a bit like denying a child, denying parts of your personality almost, I kind of think. Yeah, I think that's really good. It's, it's important just to have it a normal conversation about these things, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I've learned so much from the work that you are doing, not only at BDF, but in the UK in general. And once again, I look at it often from across the pond, but it just seems like there's so much collaboration that is happening in the UK and also in Europe sometimes, but mainly in the UK. And unfortunately, we are not as collaborative in the disability field in the United States. And, and we're trying to be, and we certainly have pockets of it, but I often look longingly at the way y'all are all working together, partnering, collaborating, and, and you're so good about including me and others that want to collaborate. I've learned a lot about coming out from my friends in the United Kingdom, including Mr. Milliken, Neil Milliken, who recently um, was also diagnosed with ADHD. Not a big surprise for us that know him. Yeah, it's funny. We have these connections, isn't it, Deborah? And I kind of feel like I kind of know you by default through Neil, actually. I've known Neil for like five and a half, nearly six years now. And yeah, fa fantastic uh, member of my technology task force. So, uh, and, and, a, and a recent winner at our Disability Smart Awards as well, and, and really yes. well-deserved. Fantastic. So Deborah, I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying about maybe some of the differences between the US and the UK. So Business Disability Forum, a UK-based organization, we've been doing this here for uh, coming up to 30 years. So I was just interested in, for, I mean, we have listeners in the US, so many of our, our listeners will know a bit about the, the US context, but there'll be a good, a good chunk that maybe don't. So I wondered if you could maybe give us a bit of insight into 
disability in business as a as, as an issue in the, in the US. Interested in your thoughts, you talked a little bit about what potentially the US can learn from the UK or the rest of the world, but what do you think the rest of the world can learn from, from the US uh, around this topic? Great question, Brendan. And I think there's so many things that we've done right in the US. We, we have our Americans with Disabilities Act. It is 30 years old. It's coming up on 30 year anniversary in 2020. And we have other laws. We also have lawyers. And so what we do in the United States is we legislate and then we litigate. Even though it causes a lot of heartache and a lot of problems, our litigation at the same time, we have held corporations feet to the fire. And, you know, in a way, we didn't want to do that. We wanted corporations to include us because they saw the value in including people with disabilities. I, I just did a little video of encouraging U.S. CEOs to join the Valuable 500. Why would you not join this global movement? It makes so much sense. But our litigation um, has definitely caused lots of heartburn. It also has caused division between the community and corporations as well. But I think there's so many things that we've learned. And because we are litigating and we're suing, it's mainly we're suing over web accessibility, but it's branched out to your apps have to be accessible. We're going to sue you there. We're going to sue you. <laughs> we're going to sue you if you don't include us. And that is just part of the structure of being an American. What do you mean I can't order your Domino's pizza and put my own toppings on? Oh, no, wrong. Oh, yes, I can. So we're very demanding across the board in, as Americans because we know we can use our legal systems. And so I think there's a lot that we've done. And we have some wonderful organizations in the United States. We have USBON, which is now called Disability Colon IN, and I served on their national board for six years. We have the National Organization on Disabilities. We have the World Institute on Disabilities, and I'm on their board. Uh, we have National Business Disability Council. We have some great organizations, and they do wonderful work. But I think the opportunity that I see with BDF, as, as Lucy mentioned, is the task forces that you have, where you encourage the corporations to come and help solve the problems. So going back to litigation, one thing that we realized as we were litigating it, the corporations, for example, not only corporations are being sued, it's all sizes, education, we're suing our government, we're suing each other going, we are going to be included, you better include us. But we had to then say, okay, fine, if I'm not accessible, tell me what you mean about really being accessible. And so we had to do a lot of understanding what are we asking for. And I think, once again, looking at what BDF was doing with your different task force, we were able to take some of that data and apply it to the U.S. But our messy way of doing things, I think, has actually benefited all of us. But at the same time, it has created some really big divides right now that are becoming harder and harder to overcome. I hear corporations saying to me in the United States that they don't really believe that the vendors that are available understand the complexity of what they're having to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, which is why, once again, I think it would be so wonderful to have a model like the BDF available to global and U.S. corporations, because if you are a global, I'll pick on ATOS since we mentioned Neil, but ATOS now has, I believe, uh, 26,000 to 33,000 American employees. So welcome to the U.S. 
we expect you to give us full access and to include us. And if you don't, we're going to come sue you. So that's sort of new to corporations that haven't, you know, lived and worked in the United States. So it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. I think actually the UK could learn a bit from that sort of uh, approach of, you know, let's just sue people if you're not doing stuff. This is actually the law and it's the law most places around the globe. I think we're all aware of that. People just don't take, seem to take it seriously. I think the US has got a different culture and I think there's strengths and weaknesses to that, as you've already said. I think there's also something really interesting around, yes, by all means, let's litigate against people, but also let's educate them. Let's help them learn. Let's show them the error of their ways. Because I think one of the things I often talk about is people don't design stuff to be inaccessible. They're not going, let's not let those disabled people have access to this stuff. It's just a case that they've never thought about it or they've never really thought, how would they access it or how would they go about using these tools? So I think that's a really interesting thing to think about how we can support organizations. And that's obviously one of the big things we do. And so we know you're such a great advocate of the stuff we do, but I think that's really, really important am. as well. Yeah, and, and you know what, Lucy, I'll, I'll say two things with that. Uh, when I, once again, I deliberately started my business because I wanted to employ people with disabilities. I was very deliberate, for-profit, wanted to, technology. So the first website I built, it was so great. Now, this is 2001, but it was amazing. And it, it could, it was just the coolest website ever built in my mind. And then I was talking to a really amazing man at the National Science Foundation. I remember this conversation. His name was Dr. Larry Scadden, um, who's retired now, and he was blind. He said, Deborah, I go to your website and I cannot see anything. I can't get access to one single thing on your website. I'm like, what? What do you mean? So here I'm moving into this business and I didn't even know that we had built this website in a way that was cool as could be if you happen to not have a disability. So sometimes we make those mistakes. You know, I learned, but also Lucy, another thing that I wanted to add to what you said was that another thing you do, which once again, I so applaud, is you invite the corporations to be part of the solution. And that is, that is so impactful because then you get people like, the Neils of the world or the Darren Rowans of the world with lily.com and Andy at GSK. I mean that, and then you wind up making advocates yourself. Some of the most amazing people I know are corporate people that have and have not been touched by disabilities. And that's what you're bringing. And I think that's powerful. It's interesting listening to you talk about the culture in the in the states of of, um, of litigation from the outside that can sometimes sound quite adversarial I guess from the outside <laughs> looking in but it's interesting that you know BDF was founded 30 years ago and really one of the reasons why it was founded by Susan Scott Parker who you mentioned earlier our founder was really that it wasn't that these companies were sort of actively looking to discriminate there was a small group of companies that really wanted to get this right and wanted to do better but actually all of the guidance and the support was geared towards candidates, people with disabilities right. looking for jobs. There was nothing for the corporations to help them to, to understand how disability impacts on their, on their business and to equip the, the people with the, with the right kind of training and guidance. And that's really how BDF kind of came to be. So the, this thing about positioning business as part of the solution rather than the problem really is kind of core to our, our model. I agree. And I, I'm very proud to work for corporations in the United States and the, cor the banks that I worked for, you know, some of them were global banks and I was really proud and we weren't bad. We weren't bad banks. We, 
we really did try to do always the right thing by the customer, but often we just don't know what to do. I, I never heard about that when I was working in the bank. And actually from the bank is one reason why I came into the industry because I was a vice president and I had a lot of employees and Meg O'Connell at the time came and said, would you be interested in hiring a few candidates with disabilities? And I was like, I'm in. Cause you know, I had a daughter with Down syndrome. It was like, these are my people. So it is very interesting. And I will also tell you because it is such a ground and part of our culture, the litigation and the lawsuits, we just understand that's the way it works. You're going to get sued if you're a company in the United States, because you're going to do something wrong because we have tons of laws. But including people with disabilities, my last book was inclusion branding, where I was talking about how corporations need to show society that you're a good corporation. It's just demands that are being made now, especially by the smarter, younger generation. They're demanding it. They don't want to work for you. They're not going to buy from you. They're not going to promote you if you're not a good corporation. And so I used including the community of people with disabilities as in this book, talking about how you show that you are making a difference. And I'll give you another brand that I love that, yes, BDF is part of, Barclays Bank. I always say to Paul Smythe, please come over bigger in the, and they are in the United States, but they're mainly credit cards and wealth management, I think, but they don't have bank branches. We want Barclays to come to the United States because they're doing such innovative work. And I look around at so many of the corporations you're dealing with, and they're owning this. I'm not seeing that as much in my beautiful United States. I love my country. I love being an American, but I see it's more in, and this is the bad part of litigation. They're going to do what they need to do, but it's more about risk and compliance and not as much about innovation, unfortunately. So I know there's good and bad in all of this. And this is why it's so important we collaborate and come together and work together too, because at the end of the day, we want to brag about the Barclays of the world. We want to say, you have an, if you have an option, which we all do, bank with them because they're making a difference. Lloyd's. I've always heard about Lloyd's. I mean, there's so many cool, y'all have so many cool customers and the impact and the innovation. It's something that I sometimes look at longingly. And I also will say to them, but wait a minute, if you're doing it in the UK innovatively, yay. And you're doing it in the US because we're going to sue you if you don't. Okay, cool. You also need to do it around the rest of the world. Any place that you have a footprint, you need to be doing it. I agree with you on that, Deborah. I would because, you know, part of my role is that I lead the work that we do with our members and partners that are global. And I know that's an area where I guess your work and my work kind of cross over. So, I mean, you know, the facts behind this, you know, over a billion people globally with a disability, many in developing countries where they're probably among some of the most disadvantaged in the world. So the power that multinational companies have to have a, you know, an impact, a positive impact through their employment, through their service provision through their supply chain is just immense and you know we're starting to see the real appetite and a move from global companies to start to develop a more global approach to, to disability yes. inclusion thank you for listening to part one of our conversation with deborah Roo. part two will be coming out soon and we'll be talking more about global diversity and inclusion ai and our accessibility maturity model if you enjoyed the conversation, please like, share and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe. To keep up to date with all of our latest news, take a look at our website, which is businessdisabilityforum.org.uk.